Previously, on The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 2. Pembroke Town officials had called in experts from Boston to investigate the murder of 17-year-old student Josie Langmaid. And ten days after she was found dead, a French-Canadian immigrant named Joseph LePage was arrested in Suncook, New Hampshire, a village of Pembroke. After two trials, he was convicted and sentenced to hang in 1878. This crime and trial ripped the town apart, dredging up long-simmering tensions between the locals and the Quebecois immigrants. And though the pervasive prejudice against the Quebecois in Pembroke and throughout New England likely swayed people's feelings about LePage's guilt one way or the other, over time, even those who had once supported him had to admit he was probably guilty. We left off wondering what a crime like this does to both communities, that of the victim and the perpetrator. What did grief and contrition look like in the years following these events, and in what ways did it become incorporated into the culture and history? I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 3. This begins the B-side of tape number 5 in Library Work Order 7, Library Work Order 12254, the Helen Hartness Flanders Cylinder Duplication Project. Real item B1 is Cylinder 100 in the collection, in which Mrs. Tatra sings The Sun Cook Tragedy, Two Little Kittens, and John Grumley. This song is sung by Mrs. Tatra. As in the introduction to part one of episode four, that was Mabel Wilson Tatro singing The Sun Cook Tragedy. However, it's from an earlier recording session for the Flanders Ballad Collection, done in 1930. This recording was done on wax cylinders, which is why the quality is so poor. Before she begins singing, Mabel states again that her father was acquainted with LePage and that my mother and aunt used to sing this when I was young, about 45 years ago. So this song, memorializing what happened to Josie, has been around since at least 1885, sung and shared around home fires and at social gatherings. And interestingly, within the Flanders Ballad Collection of Folk Music, 
there are seven different people who sing at least some version of this song, though Mabel Wilson Tatro's is the only one that's complete. It's worthy to note that every one of those people who knew the Sun Cook tragedy song were originally from northern Vermont, near the Quebec border. So it's hard not to imagine the song's origin might lie within the Quebecois community. On its own, the song has general popular appeal. It's sad, it's gruesome, and cautionary. But for the Quebecois in New England, this song was personal. Not because of Josie, but because of LePage. In retrospect, it became clear that LePage victimized everyone in his life, not just the girls he attacked and killed. And that included the entire Quebecois community. Socially, the purpose of a communal identity is to be a place where we find pride, comfort, and support, where the triumph or tragedy of an individual is shared by all. LePage was one of their own, and committed his crimes all while living among them. His own sister-in-law, Juliana Rousse, attacked in Quebec. Then, when the murders of Marietta Ball in St. Albans and Josie Langmaid in Pembroke occurred, he came home at night to their Quebecois enclaves. They knew him, worked with him, defended him. His manipulations made them complicit in his crimes. Where does one even begin to make sense of such an immense betrayal? It seems what we're seeing with the creation of and passing on of the Sun Cook tragedy song is an oral culture doing what it does best, making a record of its history and confronting the truth of it head on. There was no denying who LePage was and where he came from. And we can imagine many a New England Quebecois searching their memory for any interaction they might have had with LePage, any red flags they might have overlooked. Mabel Wilson Tatro alludes to some of this hindsight soul-searching in her 1930 and 1958 recording sessions. Both Mabel and her husband George Tatro's families lived on both sides of the Vermont-Quebec border for years, and their parents were of LePage's generation. She stated that her father had known LePage and had seen him once in a tavern in St. Albans after Josie was killed. As in most oral histories, there is likely some truth to what she said. Maybe her father had met or seen LePage. Maybe he just figured, since they were from the same area and lived in the same French-speaking enclaves, that they must have met each other at some point. However, in reality, we know her father could not have seen LePage in St. Albans after Josie was killed there was a very narrow window between when Josie was found and when LePage was arrested, and no evidence LePage had ever left Suncook in the interim. If he had made it out of Suncook before he was arrested, why would he ever have gone back? But, no harm. In true oral history fashion, a small tweak of the details makes for a more engaging story. And, like any anecdote about a near-miss with catastrophe, the farther away from the actual event we get, 
the closer, scarier, and more near-missier our memory of it becomes with each telling. It's fair to say that everyone touched by this murder was heartbroken. And beyond the Sun Cook tragedy song, there were other ways in which the local and regional communities around Sun Cook and Pembroke tried to make peace for themselves and do justice to Josie's memory. As I mentioned near the beginning, the town took it upon themselves to erect an elaborate monument to Josie fairly soon after she was killed. So this is neat. This is... The monument here, this is Lang made. It's set on the site on Academy Road where Josie had been pulled off into the woods. It's the tall gray obelisks that were all the fashion in the day, taking on the look of a cemetery marker, which, in a way, it kind of was. The faces of the monument chronicle the kinds of things you'd expect. In the memory of Josie, a Lang made, a student of Pembroke Academy, who was murdered here on her way to school on the fourth day of October, 1875. Age, 17 years, 10 months, and 27 days. But it also goes on to state that her body was found 90 feet north and her head found 82 rods north. Both spots identified today with stone markers. There's one of the stone markers. Yeah, she wasn't very far off the road, but enough. It's very sad. Poor girl. Others in town took a more personal approach to expressing their grief. In 1878, the year LePage was hanged, Pembroke resident and minister at the local Methodist Episcopalian Church, S.C. Keeler, published his work titled The Murdered Maiden Student, a tribute to the memory of Miss Josie A. Langmaid. The book is fancy, hardcover with embossing on the front and the back, gilding on the front cover and on the edges of the pages. It's short, only some 66 pages and small in size, meant to be carried with you in a very sentimental Victorian way. It gives a brief synopsis of what happened to Josie, leaving out all the graphic details, as well as provides a description of the monument and steel-cut images of it, the Langmaid home, and of Josie herself. The book never mentions LePage by name, and states outright on page 8 of the introduction titled The Murderer's Doom that Having lived like a brute, it is fitting that, like one, he should be left in these pages without a name. The majority of the book contains an epic poem written by Keeler, 
in very formal, opulent speech, separated into 73 verses within a mere 20 easy-to-read sections. He sets the scene of a beautiful, industrious town, with beautiful, industrious children, going to the beautiful, industrious school, beautifully and industriously. Josie is virtuous and innocent as she passes by farms and fields, and he describes literally every kind of tree and fern she would have seen on her way to school. When it came time to broach the subject of her attack, he took on the perspective of a very distant third-person voice, focusing on the sadness of it all rather than the gore. But there at last the ghastly body told the secret that the woodland could not hold. Alone, assaulted, mangled, murdered, dead, and her soul from the awful scene had fled. And Keeler continues with the idea of how torn up the town was, and the utter sadness and pain they felt, thinking how Josie died alone, drawing parallels between her unheard cries of fear and calls for help to the absolute devastation felt by each person in town when they heard of Josie's fate. But when the torch that lid the woodland gloom revealed that night the measure of her doom, a thousand voices of her wail awoke, and from a thousand anguish voices broke. Keeler goes on, and on, for nineteen verses about their collective sadness as a town and their demands for justice. And the public, others outside of Pembroke and Suncook, wanted to know more, wanted to understand too. Seizing on the promise of morbid curiosity seeking looky loos, transcripts of LePage's first trial were published in a rather pulpy book in 1876 called The Trial of Joseph LePage, the French Monster. There were also stereoscopic parlor cards sold that had photos of the Langmaid house the spot along Academy Road where Josie was abducted, and views of the woods where she was later found. Incidentally, for all you modern looky-loos, the trial transcript has been scanned and is available online. And those stereoscopic photos can be viewed on the New Hampshire Historical Society website. At first glance, the song, the marker, the Keeler book, the trial transcription, and the stereoscopic parlor photos seem excessive for the time. But then again, so was this crime, and so, in turn, was everyone's response and their grief. How do you make sense of the world after something like that? Where there's the life you knew before and the life you know after. And because of the barbarity and immensity of what you witnessed, Nothing can ever make the former the latter again. And if it was hard on those communities, imagine what it was like for the Langmaid family. To get a better feel for the town in this story, I drove around to all the sites I learned about in my research, making a lot of wrong turns and going past the same house so many times I'm surprised I didn't have the cops called on me. Once I finally got my bearings, I was surprised to see that all the important sites were contained within a relatively small area. 
If you were to look at a map of Pembroke and Suncook Village and plot the points of interest from Josie's life and death, you would see that they're all laid out in a straight line along a roughly three-mile stretch of road from Academy Road to Buck Street. West to east, it starts with the building where she went to school, Pembroke Academy, then the spot where she was murdered and the site of the obelisk marker, then the house where she lived, and finally, the Buck Street Cemetery where she's buried. The route is a nice, quiet, very rural, agricultural stretch flanked by modern roads and a lot of traffic. Today, the Buck Street Cemetery is located on Batchelder Road, which originally was part of Buck Street. When the state put in Route 28 here, it cut off the eastern end of Buck Street and bypassed all those small, quiet roads I just drove to get here. As you can hear, it's a busy thoroughfare. The cemetery sits on a bluff overlooking the Suncook River on the town line between Pembroke and Allenstown. And the Langmade plot is situated right at the edge of Route 28. The plot itself is outlined with granite curbing, and the family stone is a white marble obelisk set on a plinth. It's bright and clean, well kept by today's caretakers of the cemetery. And just like the obelisk that marks where Josie was killed, this obelisk has inscriptions on three of the four faces, documenting the burials beneath. It's here where we begin to understand the extent of the tragedies that plagued the Langmaids. Josie's murder may have been the most infamous loss to this family, but it wasn't the first, and it wasn't the last. James Langmaid married Mary Ann Martin in Chichester, New Hampshire in 1856. They made their living as farmers and were extremely successful, reporting substantial assets in real estate and cash on hand in the 1860 census. Together, they had Josie in 1857, Waldo in 1860, and two more children soon after. So we've got Clarence, Ella B and Clarence B. And those were the two full siblings of Josie and Waldo. So those were Marianne and James's children. Ella died one year, three months old, 18 days. Clarence died 10 months old, 18 days. And it says children of J.F. and M.A.S. Langmaid. Ella was born in February of 1861, but only lived a little over a year, dying in May of 1862. Later that same year, in December, son Clarence was born, but he only lived 10 short months, dying in September of 1863. The front facing the road that has Mary Ann S., Wife of James F. Langmaid died January 8, 1864, aged 25. Then, only four months after baby Clarence passed away, Mary Ann Martin Langmay passed away in January of 1864. Given the quick succession of deaths in that household, 
one has to suspect an illness of some sort. Perhaps something chronic but not immediately deadly like tuberculosis. If Marianne were infected with such a disease, she would have endured cycles of sickness and recovery. But add to the equation the demands on her body of a steady stream of pregnancies, she never would have been able to gain back her full strength. And as she weakened, the last two children would have been born sickly and thus more susceptible to complications and other problems. By then, James was still a young man of 31 and had Josie and Waldo to look after. In 1867, he married Sarah Hazeltine Cochran, a woman from a prominent and successful family the next town over in Pembroke. Sarah, James, Josie, and Waldo moved into a large farmhouse in a section of Pembroke along Buck Street, where much of Sarah's extended family lived. And James and the kids were probably very happy with this new arrangement. A nice big house and farm settled in among Sarah's family, equidistant from the school Josie and Waldo would attend on one end of the road, and the cemetery with their deceased mother and siblings at the other. Life began to move on. James and Sarah would go on farming and be even more prosperous than before. James dipped his toe into local politics, being elected selectman in 1871 and 1872, as well as serving as Justice of the Peace from 1873 to 1875. Sarah and James would have five more children, three of whom would survive. Grace, born in 1870, Elizabeth, born in 1872, and Abby, born in 1874. But, as we know, this attempt at a new and normal life did not last. And around the side, again, we have Josie A. died October 4th, 1875, at 17 years, 10 months, 27 days. Waldo H. died December 15th, 1875, at 16 years, 4 months, and 28 days. And then underneath it says children of J.F. and M.A. S. Langmade. As if losing Josie in the manner they did wasn't bad enough. Just two months after she was killed, her brother Waldo died of pneumonia. It goes without saying that the boy was absolutely devastated by what happened to Josie. On top of being distraught over the fact that she was killed and how, he felt responsible for her fate, having unknowingly left her to walk to school alone on the morning she was killed. The feeling in town was that when he fell ill, he simply didn't have the will to fight it. And so, after Josie's murder and Waldo's death, the Langmaid's life in their house on Buck Street, a life they had once tried to balance between the sadness of their past and the promise of their future, became haunted by the present. They were trapped in what would become a spectacle of mourning. Their own neighborhood, bookended by stone monuments dedicated to the public losses of their family with Josie's murder site marker at one end and the family burial plot at the other. 
Yet there was still more to endure. Condolences to accept, and the looks, and the whispers. LePage's first trial in 1876, the second trial in 1877, and the hanging in 1878. The publishing of the trial transcripts, the Keeler poem, the string of gawking sightseers, the Sun Cook tragedy song. It was an inhuman amount of suffering to be confronted with every day. And by 1880, the strain was starting to show. While Sarah and the girls remained in the home in Pembroke, James was living 430 miles away in Minnesota. It appears the Langmaids had reached their limit. This has been The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 3. Special thanks for this episode go to Jennifer Vanell and Badger Studios for musical arrangement and performance. Tom Dernford, voice actor. Middlebury College Special Collections, Flanders Ballad Collection for the use of the original recordings of Mabel Wilson Tatro. And thanks to Denver Percussion, Denver, Colorado. For more information about this show, visit our website at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast. Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Mm-hmm.